Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton. I'm here today with uh, John and Matt. Today, we have a kind of mind-blowing, life-altering discussion. I think it has been that for me, and that it is reading John Bear, reading the uh, early church fathers, in regard to the meaning of the logos or the word. We're going to discuss that and a kind of discussion then that will focus in on how a right understanding of this conversation, I think, will resolve issues surrounding apathia that we had for a long time, an open theology discussion around that. I think that this resolves issues brought up by Moltmann in regard to who God is and what the atonement is. We're going to hopefully fill this out through a a series of questions. If we get this right, the intersection of eternality and time in Christ, that it is an understanding of the early church that is just key to nearly every doctrine. And so this is the question I will pose to Matt and John. That is, what is the meaning of the word, or is the meaning of the word filled in by the gospel of Christ? I think one way of addressing the question through, say, Gregory of Nyssa, is to think about it in the sense that who the word is, is identical to who Jesus is. And yet, when we say that, we don't simply mean that the Word can be, or the Word, or the Son of God. This hypostasis, one of the three subsistences of the Trinity, can be reduced simply to who Jesus is, or the person of Jesus. And so there is a way of participation, as we we think from the human things we see, to talking about the nature of God, which is always going to be apophatic, or, you know, we have to describe the nature of God as infinite and comprehensible and uncreated. You couldn't say those things necessarily just about the person of Jesus, but in a way, what we say about the person of Jesus participates in, in, that, in that notion of the nature of God. And so then the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels is none other, or is the per- the divine person of the Son of God, or the Word. And that when we contemplate that person, we are simultaneously, because of the communion uh, that these persons, the consubstantiality of the persons of the Trinity, we are also contemplating the Father and the Holy Spirit. So that our access to who God is, even as Father as spirit is in and through the Son or through the Word, but who the Word is, that the access that we have is in and through the person of Jesus, the incarnate Christ, which is not to delimit any of those categories, but to say that each of those categories, at least from our perspective, and not removed then from the imminent Trinity, is an access then to who God is within and, himself. Yeah, and at this point, we would say that's the work of the Holy Spirit, so that we don't even contemplate the Son of God or the Word or Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit bringing Jesus to mind. The question, and we don't need to dwell upon this question, but just to point it out, in other words, as a kind of contrast, is that we've developed 
a kind of narrative or a story of Jesus that is merely an episode, this is the Rowan Williams quote, an episode in the biography of the Word, that we have an understanding of the pre-existence of Christ devoid of the person of Jesus, so that even Jesus is in some way reduced then to this abstraction. And I guess the question is, where in the world did that come from? Yeah, yeah, I'm not for sure exactly where it came from, but I think uh, to help people further conceptualize what you just said, simply to say that I think we have a tendency to think about who Jesus was, uh, the attributes, the characteristics of this person that we meet on the pages of Scripture, as uh, a person who just existed for you know thirty something years, uh, and then goes back to being some kind you know the ineffable God or something. But what you're what we're hoping to say in this conversation is actually that no, who Jesus is, the person that we can get to know because uh, the Holy Spirit is revealing God to us in a human being is really who God is also. You know, if you, I, don't know, I don't want to tread on dangerous ground, but, you know, to think about, like, the personality of God, well, obviously, that could only be an analogy. We don't mean it in the same way that a human would have a personality, but is revealed to us in the personality of Jesus that we meet in the pages of Scripture. The person of God is to be found in Jesus, and meaning personhood, then, in the sense of a time-space there's only one time-space story to be told about God, and that's the story of Jesus. Of course, we understand that that's not disconnected from the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. That Jesus, is, I mean, Jesus is revealed to us, actually, throughout time and space, and that is also a story about God, but not quite in the same way. Hermeneutically, it changes everything, too, right, this conversation, because if you start reading then the Old Testament in light of what we're saying about that God doesn't have any story that sort of exists apart from what we learn about him in Christ, how does that information inform our hermeneutic about who God may appear to be to us through the Old Testament? So the story of God being revealed in the Hebrew scriptures is the story of Jesus, or this, this story gets recapitulated or gets made concrete for us in the person of Jesus. And I think you can also say that about the church, such that the story of the church is also a story about God, but it's not another story than the story of Jesus Christ. Mm, that's good. There is an opening to scripture, to that history, through the person of Jesus. Yes, the story of Jesus opens the Bible to us in a way that it had not been opened before, that now we understand that here is the hermeneutical key in which as Jesus on the road to Emmaus unfolds what was their Bible through himself, that so too we all then are on that road to Emmaus in our hermeneutic enterprise of interpreting the word of God as we have it in Scripture, and as that interpretive lens is laid upon the world. Yeah, in the origin of Alexandria, he, he has been such a joy to read. I've been reading him over the past couple of months, and he's saying it pretty strongly. He's saying that really, apart from the story of Jesus Christ, that the Old Testament is veiled. You can't really see what it's truly about. And so he uses, I was just reading, he has a little work on prayer. He observes that the first mention of prayer in the Scripture it occurs whenever Jacob, you know, who of course is Israel, takes flight from the wrath of Esau, Edom, 
And the prayer is a simple, it's a beautiful prayer. If the Lord God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will bring me again to my father's house in safety, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be for me God's house. That's in Genesis 28. It's like, boy, that sounds pretty cool, but it's way cooler once you realize that for origin, he's saying, well, the way that you go is the way of Jesus. That what it means to bring me again to my father's house and safety is to do so through Jesus. That the stone that, that Jacob uh, has set up for a pillar, well, that God has set up for a pillar, is Jesus Christ. That God's house is the church that's built upon Christ. And so for Origen and these other fathers, they're saying that, you know, the Old Testament is quite unintelligible on one level. I mean, so Origen has kind of like what he calls like the bodily or fleshly reading of the of the scripture, the purely historic, which he believes that this stuff happened, but he's just saying, but that's not all there is to the story. You know, and then you have the, the soulish understanding or the moral, uh, and then the spiritual meaning, which can only be found in Christ. And so what Origen is essentially saying is, is that the scriptures are unlocked by Jesus Christ. As is everything. Yeah, that's right. As is everything. I was going to say that's sort of the way the fathers conceive. Now, granted, they consider Holy Scripture to be of some other category than just, say, Greek philosophy or something. But true knowledge in general works this way, right? That they're saying that true knowledge is truly made sense of or becomes comprehensible as participating in the truth of God or divine truth because of who Jesus is. So that one way of saying it is the story of everything is the story of Jesus. Let me state it in the way that the conclusion of what we're describing is that we're saying Jesus Christ, and by this we mean his life, his death, his resurrection, are an eternal fact about God. So that we have access then not only to who God is, but we have access to the truth of Scripture. We have the access to the truth of history. In other words, if this is true, if this intersection is true, then we can trace out this intersection in every direction. Yes, that's right. And so what do you guys think John Bayer mean when he says something like, through the passion, Christ as human becomes that which as God he always is? I think it's a way of saying that what you have in Christ manifest fully in the passion or accomplished fully in the passion maybe is what we all hope happens to us through theosis so that the human nature of jesus is divinized remains as a human nature in and through the passion so the incarnation right is is accomplishing our salvation for us but the the full extent of the incarnation and what it means and about the reconciliation that we have to God, uh, the becoming of true humans made in the image and likeness of God that happens through the incarnation is fully accomplished to the uttermost through the passion. So that Jesus then, as the person is becoming who the Son of God always has been and always will be in and through the passion, just as we become who we are meant to be as fully human in peace and reconciliation with God, subsisting in union with God through Christ's passion as well. So that's the interesting thing. Uh, we were talking about Gregory of Nyssa uh, earlier, and when he's talking about Christ commingling you know, the infinite with the finite, right? This and raising then the finite, lifting the finite uh, up into the infinite. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In other words, I think that what this means for me is, is that, well, you know, God doesn't ever become 
something different than what he is. He reveals himself in Jesus Christ, but I think that that's what Rowan Williams means when he says is that Jesus is not just uh, merely an episode in the biography of the Word. There is no episodes. Well, there is no past, present, and future for God. Now, there might be from our perspective, from a revelatory perspective, but not for God. That's right. And so that has to include, and it does, I mean, I think this is Bear's point that you were quoting, that the way we see this or the way this is actually made manifest in such a way that we participate in it is by God being a human being to the full extent, born, maturing, growing. That is the way that we then participate in what the person of Jesus is, you have to use partitive exegesis here, became in the passion, is who God always was. That who God is embraces change. Who God is embraces history. Who God is embraces the life, death, and resurrection. In other words, there is past and future and present in God, but those are not qualities unfolding in in God, but who God is embraces all of those things as part of the, first of all, as part of the created order, step one, but also as the eternality of God that enters into that created order. I, I think I would say it a little bit differently just because I wouldn't, I would want to say it in much more of a way that is saying, it's not that God embraces something that's other than himself, it's that God in his excessive love has created and made possible and is the reason for a past, a present, and a future. Yeah, the, and I like the way John Baer says it too, that uh, for Christians to read scripture as scripture is to read it in what he calls an apocalyptic key, right? Which is a really cool idea of, and this is very much Gregory of Nyssa and David Bentley Hart does a, a great job of expounding upon this. And that is, is that the end is the beginning. That's the whole point of the resurrection of, of creation, that the meaning of creation is only understood in its end. That's right. I guess what I, I was attempting to emphasize, there is a sense that I, I first encountered this in Moltmann, and of course, Moltmann is referencing Hegel. And there's a wrong way of saying it, and, and I think a right way of saying it, you know, that in Moltmann, he talks about death being taken up into God. That reifies that reality as if it is an enduring reality. And I think that's part of the, the problem with sin. In other words, that even in the unfolding of history and time, there are enduring aspects, and there are those things that are given over to death. And that is a, a reality that is worked out then in a time-space continuum. That's simply to say that's a reality that's only possible in a time-space continuum. What you're describing, you only actually have in terms of a finite cosmos, which is to say that none of those categories make any sense in in God per se. But we can say that, but simultaneously say, yes, but in this finite frame of reference, we have access to the eternality of God. Because God has created, as, created it as so, and is the reason for its continued existence. I guess what I took issue with, and maybe I'm just being too picky, is to say that God embraces creation is to say that God embraces something other than himself. Well, that's true, that creation is other than God, but creation is other than God not as something that subsists in itself, as a, as a reality that God just intersects, which is not what you think. I mean, I don't think that you think that, but I think a better way of saying that is to simply say the relation between God and creation 
is one that is created from God towards creation so that God isn't dependent upon this other reality, and you make that very clear up front, but rather that creation itself is dependent upon God in several ways, which is to say for its beginning, but also for its endurance and for its meaning, which means to say where it ends up, which is what Matt was point is the beginning is the end. And so maybe the, the distinction needs to be brought out. That is, there really is a distinction. That is that in a Franciscan sort of understanding, at least as it's there in Duns Scotus, maybe in Richard Rohr, that they're talking about a kind of similar understanding, but they're talking about that understanding apart from the person of Jesus. That in some way, I think they are making the category mistake that you're describing. They're describing creation as the body of God as a kind of indistinctness. That sounds awful. (laughs) Well, guys, I can't help but to wonder then if the incarnation, if the cross, if the resurrection are all eternal facts about God, because, well, everything about God is eternal, uh, you know, fact. (laughs) I mean, it's like, does that mean that, you know, humanity then has always been divinized? Creation is transfigured because God became man. I think when John Bear says that the incarnation or the cross is an eternal fact about God, that he doesn't mean anything really all that different than saying that the person of Jesus is identical to the Logos. So to get at your question, Matt, I think we don't want to say that God by nature has to create. Does that make sense? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I think we just have to be careful. But to your point, I think what we would be able to say is the point of creation is always divinization. We can't really talk about what this would look like from God's perspective because we're not God. But one way that John Milbank talks about this is that what we would take as being linear time is really just the widest possible curve of the return of all things to God. So that creation doesn't exist for any other reason than God is love. That's actually Julian of Norwich. Uh, Creation exists because God loves it. I want to agree with you. I just, you know, clarify. Yeah, and so it's not that God is dependent upon creation for his being. That would just be alienism or whatever. But, yep. Yeah, that's right. But, that's but right. the creation is a, uh, is just a, a product of the sort of the infinite wellspring of God's being and love and his creative saving act. And so, in other words, God created the cosmos in order to unite it with himself. That is... The, well, that is theosis, but that's also the plan. You know, sort of anything that falls short of that is to thwart God's will. Yeah, well, it's, it's to rebel against God's will, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't know that we can ultimately thwart it, but it's saying a big thing. It's saying that God created the cosmos with the divinization of humanity, of creation, of unity with all things with himself in mind. So, of course, when we say something like final causality or the ultimate, loss of what it means with all of the cosmos we kind of put that off into the future in time for us but of course it's not it's not a future for god right no yeah that's that's exactly right what i'm trying to say you know god doesn't just all of a sudden become the final end of all things (laughs) at the end of all things god is the final so final causality is something that's always it's a it's eternal yeah that the end really is in its you know in its beginning yes yes yeah i think so
Which is probably what Paul was saying just a second yeah. ago, actually. I'm sorry, Paul. It took us a well, while to and, and I really meant that the opposite way, too, that the beginning really isn't its end. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the distinction you brought out is, is key. It's easy to lapse over. This discussion, I think, resolves the whole problem that many people have with orthodoxy, and, and orthodoxy being the notion of divine apathia. And that was what partly what I was trying to get at, that the unchangeableness of God is embraced in Jesus Christ, that we have change, we have time, we have past, future, we have an unfolding reality. It's not in any way to deny that or deny, deny God's participation in that. It's just to place that in a framework in which we're not talking about a story about God but we're talking about then an eternal reality that for God then, I mean, that it is the, the mind-blowing understanding right. of the relationship right. between time and eternity. Yes. So a uh, way of thinking about that is the only way we can make sense of ourselves, our lives, other people, whatever it might be, is, of course, by those things unfolding in time. I think this is so difficult for us to conceive because we also have this artificial sort of uh, time that is measurement. You know, so we're always talking about the past and some we talk about a moment after it's past or we talk about minutes and seconds and these things, not as something that you inhabit or imbibe, but as a measurement of something that is experienced before or after us. But I think we also realize there's something else going on that we call time, and that's the unfolding of who we are, who other people are, of God to us. But why is it that way? Well, it's because we're finite, which also means that we're dependent upon something that's not finite, which of course is God. And we're saying God, because of his love, has revealed who he is in such a way that we understand that in finite terms, because otherwise, you know, how could you? But that doesn't introduce change into God, per se. You know, that's who, that is the eternal being unfolded in time. Right. The change is a reality, and it's in no way to, de to deny change, but it's not a first-order reality. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. It's yeah. what we were talking about, Jonathan, the other day with the whole notion of, you know, epictosis, yes. where it's like a, it's an infinite sort of stretching out, where I love the way that you put it. You know, you were talking about, how did you say, you know, kind of increasing in your being? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, any kind of growth, whether that's in, uh, I was thinking probably particularly sanctification, knowledge of God, holiness, which is also growth and justification, by the way, because we're good Catholics. We become more. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. This is where language yeah. will fail us, right? But it's the idea that being is intensified. And I think this is really what's being described in the, you know, a resurrected body. But that as we grow in the knowledge of God, what we are becomes intensified. Which is just, I mean, an amazing sort of inversion of the kenosis, right? Yeah. It's such a beautiful way to think about that our being is intensified because of the kenosis. Yeah, which means we participate in goodness. We become more beautiful. We become good. We become, you know, it's it's an amazing thing really to contemplate. It is. It's, I have more being now than whenever I was, you know, baptized 13 years ago. Yeah. I mean, that's, but, but the point is, is that the reason for that is because of the incarnation. Yeah. And it's the work and it's an eternal thing, right? So this, again, the incarnation being an eternal fact about God, that this is how we get stretched out into eternity. Yeah. It's another way of saying divinized. Yes. So we remain finite. So this is an amazing, I mean, this itself is really, uh, you know, it's paradoxical. It's amazing to contemplate that even while remaining finite, 
we're going to grow because we're finite we can grow into the knowledge of both ourselves and god for eternity and we will we will know even as we are fully known and we will know god that's an amazing thing to think about right that is salvation it's beautiful i i saw the quote uh, david bentley hart has this quote that he said what did someone like origin or, or gregory of nyssa think that the point of creation is he said ultimately to call spirits mm -hmm. out of nothingness into eternal divinizing union with god and within a frame of created nature which is full of the glory of God and is absolute. And that's it. That's the whole point of. Yeah, exactly. Yes. yes so we're right. all getting heavier <laughs> and putting on weight. Not a bad thing because it's the weight, the of weight glory. of glory. Yes. <laughs> but isn't that the whole idea of, uh, of like holiness? Like a weight. Yeah. 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 It's the weight of glory. That's a sermon title of C.S. Lewis's. Yeah, no, I think and that's what he's describing this actually. So that uh, there is then a passage that we're describing. I imagery in Scripture is a birth of an unfolding of new creation that we're all participating in, and it's as if, you know, what we're describing is something that we can almost see. You know, you can look back and see yourself as a little creature, kind of unknowing as you mature, that there is then an unfolding of reality for you that is going to be an unceasing unfolding and an unceasing growth in maturity which is back to the point uh of matt's quote about he quoted john bear earlier about the passion i mean that's another way of saying that is to say that jesus in the passion and resurrection reveals to us divinized humanity so that this is where we're going this is a mature state. This is what it means to truly be human. And even that's not a static thing, right? I mean, right. Jesus is, that, there's a little bit of a difference between who Jesus is and who we will be, but it's not a static thing. It's a, because even as Jesus takes on human nature, it's human nature will infinitely be stretched out into the glory of God. I, I love the way Origen of Alexandria puts this. He says that the Savior is eternally begotten by the Father. So also, if you possess the spirit of adoption, God eternally begets you in him according to each of your works, each of your thoughts. So in being begotten, you thereby you become an eternally begotten son of God in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That's right. Co-heirs, Paul says. <laughs> you can reverse that imagery. But as we are the church, then the birth of Christ continues within, that the incarnation continues in the church. That we're continually giving birth then to this reality in the world. Yes. Yeah. Let's just glow in that afterthought. <laughs> That's right. That's we're, we're all being transfigured, right? Origin kind of goes on with that notion of, of really being begotten, uh, you know, becoming like Jesus in the sense that we're sort of eternally begotten by God, just, you know, in Christ, just by virtue of being created right? By virtue of theosis, of divinization, that we're eternally begotten sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're finite and we're created, but that for Origen, he wants to say that, you know, so he likens it to in John, whenever Jesus says to his mother, behold your son, he doesn't say, you know, behold, this man also is your son. That Jesus has equally said, behold, this is Jesus whom you bore. Origen says, for indeed, everyone who has been perfected no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And since Christ lives in him, it's said of Mary, behold your son, the Christ. So mm -hmm. with all this being said, we want to say on the one hand that everything, you know, that, that Jesus is what God has to say, that Jesus is the face of God, that if you want to know what the That's father right. is like, you know, you, you look to Jesus. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the father. Would it be wrong to say that in Jesus, we find out 
Beautiful. everything that there is to know about being fully human. I guess my question is, is can we know more about God than what we find out about him in Jesus Christ? So I've, I've been thinking about the question, and I think uh, there's just a better way of thinking about it. So I think we can ask the question in such a way that it's going to trick us into saying things we don't really mean. Okay. <laughs> um, so perhaps a way of thinking about it is we think there's probably nothing that's going to be revealed about there. Well, I would say there is nothing that's going to be revealed about God that is not found in the person of Christ because he is the exact image and representation of the father. On the other hand, what we may be asking is the truth of Jesus Christ and exclusive truth to where that it's such a truth that excludes all other things that we might take as truth as not actually being true. Or is it on the other hand, and in, inclusive truth such that we can say the story of God and Jesus is also inclusive of the true knowledge that we might find in the work of creation or in the work of, uh, well, in the work of God's love manifest between two people in a relationship. And I would say, uh, yeah, that's the case, actually, that it's not an exclusionary truth that makes all other things false. Rather, it's uh, the type of truth that brings to light the goodness, the truth, and the beauty uh, in which all things participate and subsist. That's the thing, I guess, if you know, because we've talked about this before, that uh, that in some way, the transcendentals, you know, that what we want to say is that God doesn't have goodness. God is goodness. Mm -hmm. You know, God doesn't have anything. He doesn't have beauty or truth or or, or wisdom. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, you know, he is. He is those things. And so what I'm getting at with my question is, can you know that about God apart from the incarnation? Or does the incarnation just help elucidate what we mean by what I would be comfortable with saying? is that when we encounter goodness, truth, or beauty in some, say, some school of thought, whether it be some form of philosophy, or if we encounter those things in a relationship that we have between another human being and ourselves, or we encounter those things in creation as such, we are encountering goodness, truth, beauty that exists in every moment because of who God is. And it exists in imitation of God, uh, in imitation of God's goodness. So we do know God in and through those things, but it's not the same goodness and truth and being that God has, such that we're not pantheists, right? So there is a, a qualitative difference, perhaps, in mm -hmm. what Jesus... But Jesus is mediated to us by creation. I don't think we need to shy away from that. Uh, that who Jesus is is a created being in, in the sense that, uh, again, speaking partitively here, in the sense that he's fully human. So that it's not what we're saying in Jesus is those created aspects of truth, beauty, and goodness that exist in imitation of the good, the truth, the true, and the beautiful, which is actually God. Those things can participate directly in the divine person of the Logos as a created nature and hypostasized in the divine person. So it's to say there doesn't, I don't think we have to say that there isn't true knowledge that even is true because it somehow subsists in the truth of God to be found in schools of thought uh, that we think about in philosophy or in our relationships or in creation as such. But what we would be saying is those aren't other truths in Jesus Christ. I think it's important to, to say it in this way again. Because if we, we, we need to say both things, in other words, uh, re referencing your question, can we know more about God than we know, find in Jesus Christ? 
our tendency may be to think, oh yeah, it's easy to arrive at a kind of absolute truth that's this floating tree of who Christ is. But I'm afraid then that the exchange that is described in both Genesis and Romans, in other words, there is a mistaking of the creation for the creator. There is a blurring of that line. I think that describes idolatrous religion. That describes pagan religion for the most part. But I think that describes the failure of the human psyche that in some way we would make that which is finite, infinite, and then we get caught up in that kind of orientation to death. But I also think that theologically, that this is precisely the mistake that is made. It is a Protestant mistake, but it's also the mistake that unfolds in Duns Scotus and William of Ockham, which we've covered so well before. And that is that there's a blurring of the line between creation and creator, not because of an emphasis on to an appreciation of creation, but in fact, precisely there is this failure of thought because there's a lack of emphasis on the person of Jesus. That doesn't sound intuitively right, that the failure to recognize God in Jesus ends up this blurring then and gives us what Richard Rohr calls panentheism. He embraces panentheism as the truth, I think, as a good Franciscan then. He is making the category mistake that we will always fall into without going the direction that your question uh, would take us, Matt. And that is that we do find out about truth in and through Jesus, and that then enables us to sort out creator and creation. John, would you like to retort? Yeah, no, I don't think Paul and I are saying something different. I get so hesitant to even take on the conversation in such a way, because what I'm afraid, if you just keep pushing in that direction, what we might say is something like, well, all human knowledge has fallen to the extent, well, I'm afraid you'll become a nominalist, which is exactly what Paul's describing. So I think we're saying the same thing, that we would evacuate somehow God's presence or the truth of God from creation, from human people, from, I think we have to say, well, no, in and that there's a created relationship between uh, God and humans, and that the Logos is, you know, the creator and the sustainer in every moment, that that connection is, is meaningful, even uh, taking sin into account. But it's not to say that, I wouldn't say, rather, that there that these truths are somehow other truths than the truth of Jesus Christ, that it is all coming together in the person of, of Jesus. Which I think is what Paul said. I don't think we're disagreeing at all. That's what, yeah. yeah, yeah that's what the idea is. If these truths don't cohere in who Jesus is, then I think the, the danger is it levels all, all, everything out so that, you know, you just call everything being or everything divine or everything is the cosmos. Yeah, I think that what's really you know beautiful and cool about that kind of Christocentric theology uh, mm-hmm. in regard to the transcendentals is that the life of Jesus Christ is what informs, you know, the content of the good and of the beautiful and of the true. In other words, like you you probably wouldn't guess that what's really beautiful is the second person of the Trinity on the uh, crucified. You know what I mean? That that we can elucidate that as part of like the Christian narrative of of beauty and of goodness. So you wouldn't intuitively know that that's actually what the good and the beautiful and the true and the what 
system looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually said this earlier in the conversation because, again, it's just to reaffirm that who Jesus is isn't somehow other than or a change than the person of the Son of God or the person of the Logos. And if that's identical, then then we're saying in some way, as we contemplate that thing, we are contemplating the ineffable nature of God that's shared in common by the Godhead. Jesus reveals to us then what what is truly, we might imagine that the good is something. But it's to say, it's to say when we find peace and harmony or truth in anything, that w- what we're talking about isn't something other than, than the good who that's God right. is. It's It's to say it's the same as who the person of Jesus is fully and specifically revealing God to us. Now, of course, the trouble is, since we're finite and the, the cosmos is finite, that when we're not talking about Jesus, we are capable of willing one good over and against another good. We're capable of perverting goods, and we call all of that evil. I mean, you know, it's not to say that we're not capable of doing evil. Or even that we can't use truth and goodness and beauty. We can employ those things in their finite forms in what we call evil or evil systems. Yeah, this was uh, Paul's point to me the other day. He said, you know, the Nazis would, uh, you know, they would butcher people during the day and then go home and listen to, you know, Beethoven and open. Yeah, yeah, they had good sense about like what wine to drink, how to clean their fingernails, liked good music. Um, <laughs> so what's wrong there, you know? Well, they're willing, uh, they're willing a very limited finite good over over other goods, which is, is unleashes evil upon the world. I mean, it's sort of an anticlimactic thing to say, right? And I think that's why it's so confusing. It's just to say, oh, well, they just they willed one good thing over another good thing, and that's how they killed six million plus people. But pretty much. That is the ultimate evil, which is an argument against a kind of radical evil that to, to just will evil in and of itself yeah. is kind yeah. of an, at some level, a kind of impossibility, perhaps. But yeah. it is always, you know, that's, if you had to d- discern sin, this was sort of my blog today, that, that I think often we get confused between the results of sin or the ramifications of sin and the specific thing that is sin. And we imagine that Christ has come to resolve the results and the ramifications when what he's come to resolve is the thing itself. And if we had to define that thing itself, it's this conversation that people would mis- they would trade the creator for the creation. They would worship mm-hmm. created things. That that is, that impiety is the root problem. And everything else, you know, once you do that, once you shut off the creator from the goodness of the creation, then that is the unfolding of death, of, of the, the unfolding of the implications of walking in death and darkness. We would imagine that the being human is something in any way different than what it looked like when God became human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like... I guess that's just to say that we would imagine that being fully human is something different than what Jesus was. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Doing what Jesus yeah. did, living like he lived. Yeah. Yeah. We would conceive of it as something that we have to, we have to take from others. <laughs> I mean, that's how we do empire building, right? You got to sacrifice other people to build your kingdom so yeah, you no. can flourish and grow. And Jesus says, no, actually I'll sacrifice myself. Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. good. Now that's yeah. precisely what I mean. It's like that we would live under the law. We yeah. would live under the rule of law where i was telling you i went to the the monastery and uh, father john there was was talking about the nature of the law and how it functions he said well just think about what he was saying is is just think if you were fully human that is is just think about 
how free because his point was be to be fully human is to be free and mm-hmm. to be free is to be like Jesus. And so he was just going through the Sermon on the Mountain saying, just think about how free you would be if you didn't have to uh, worry about money. You know, if you didn't have to yeah. be angry, if you didn't have to objectify women, you know, with your with your eyes, if, right. uh, if, if you didn't have hatred in your heart. And so what he's saying is that to be fully human is to be as free as Jesus Christ is and that of course is god's design for the cosmos is to share in the freedom of yeah because ultimately freedom is freedom is not choosing between two things freedom is choosing the good which ultimately is god freedom is growing in holiness so that you would choose god not eat freedom is actually choosing one thing <laughs> wouldn't you know yeah no, which, i mean and it is it's i was actually just talking to someone uh, earlier today and it's like we we live in that the space and it really is a sort of slavery it's like well should i drink or should i not drink should i drink or should i not drink or whatever it is yeah you should drink eat yeah. drink be merry uh, live in the I mean, kingdom you, you know what i'm saying it's like <laughs> Yes, yes, I do. Sort of, yeah. um, it's this sort of um, constant kind of going back and forth uh, of should I or shouldn't I. It doesn't matter what the thing is. But that whole dynamic is a product of living under uh, the law. It's not living in the freedom of Christ. I, I, again, I, I like the way Hart puts it. He says, you know, if you ask Mother Teresa, you know, was she free to not go to Calcutta? It's like, well, not if she was going to actually go and be Mother Teresa. Sure, she could have ch- chose not to. But in another sense, that would have been to resign her freedom. That's right. Well, and yeah, so you just understand how absurd this is when you ask the question, is God free to choose evil? Uh, in other words, was Jesus free? Could Jesus have done evil? Could Jesus have chosen not to be God? No. Well, it's to say, yeah, Jesus is free. That's just not what we would imagine as freedom. Right. And so all of those questions are a misconstrual of what freedom is. He did not have any of those choices, and that is in no way an impingement upon freedom. And so we have to recognize that freedom is to be what we were created. Exactly. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. You know, Jesus wasn't worried. Jesus didn't have hatred in his heart. Jesus didn't live for money. Jesus had integrity when it came to his word. Jesus didn't objectify women. You can just go all the way through. And he does so because, precisely because he's fully human. He's fully free of those. It's to subject ourselves to those things where we resign our uh, humanity. Mm -hmm. We trade an unreality which is always the business we're in. We trade an unreality or something that is a secondary reality as if it's prime reality. And that then is an enslavement. There's nothing wrong with those things that are finite. And there's nothing wrong with capital. There's nothing wrong with sexuality. But any one of those things taken as an end in itself becomes an enslaving force in our life. And so the only thing that sorts that out, the only thing that frees us from the falling in, the language actually in Ephesians is is quite beautiful there, that the depiction is being lost in the cosmos. The cosmos, without God, it becomes necessarily a kind of anthropocentric situation in which human desire becomes the singular feature about human thought. And human thought focused on that desire 
is death dealing. Yeah, we and we talked in the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about how, you know, you, you can't understand the father apart from the son and the son apart from the father and the spirit and all those different things. And, you know, basically the Trinity as community and how we participate and share in that community is that, you know, Jesus never let worry get, I mean, just in very practical existential terms, it's like, well, I guess Jesus didn't let worry get into the middle of his relationship with his heavenly father. He didn't let money, he didn't let anger and hatred and all these things interrupt the community that he had with the father and with the spirit. And so, and in as much as he didn't allow that to happen, he was fully free and fully human and that he offers us an, an invitation to, to imitate him and to participate in that same Trinitarian uh, life that he did. Well, let me ask you a question that, that you might be able to use as a way to, to sum it all up and to close this out. So at the beginning of the podcast, you said that this was sort of a mind-blowing revelation that you're having right now. And so can you just give it to us in a couple sentences? What's the mind-blowing uh, revelation, the illumination that you're experiencing right now? I may, it may take a bit of unfolding because, you know, when I was in seminary, I was studying under a man in the Restoration Movement, Jack Cottrell, who was a participant in the openness of God discussion and was in direct correspondence with Clark Pinnock as they were unfolding this. And you understand this was back in the 70s. This was well before anything had been published on this. And I set out to write my thesis, my master's thesis. I was going to do an MA on my way to my MDiv. And I was going to write on the, the doctrine of God's timelessness. I understood there may be an, a problem in the way that that unfolds in an Augustinian understanding or in uh, the way in which an Aristotelian understanding was taken up and sometimes emphasized in the Western tradition. And so I wanted to explore that, but I never got off the ground because when we began to talk about the creation and who God is in relationship to the creation, what Cottrell was saying and what the people in openness were saying is that God exists along a timeline. And this just sort of blew my mind because the implications were, well, then he's not God. And it, it didn't seem to occur. It, it is working with a kind of Newtonian understanding and an which, you know, there was the notion that time in some way is a law and not a physical reality. I mean, it's strange that we were having this conversation in the 1970s after an, the Einsteinian revolution. In other words, in which time is clearly a physical fact. It's a fact about creation. I, I never finished that thesis. It took me, a, it was a long journey that I've been on. This is, maybe this describes my theological journey more than anything else. And it took me going to the Far East. You have to go the, to the Far East to gain wisdom. No, you know, I began to explore and read. I, I was delving into postmodern thought. I picked up Jürgen Moltmann, and I was just fascinated with Moltmann. And uh, partly because of his delving into psychoanalysis, I was already going that direction but also because of his description of the Hegelian notion, you know, he is an overt Hegelian, and there is an appreciation in Hegel and in Moltmann, a heretical appreciation for history. I began to realize, well, there needs to be this unfolding of reality and history that may be missing in some versions of 
the classical understanding as it's developed in parts of, again, in parts of Western theology. And so what this conversation is doing for me personally, it is answering that lifelong question that I've had, that I did not, I was not putting these pieces together. And it took me a long time to recognize the way these things could fit. And of course, I can't fault anyone else, but this is not taught in Protestant seminaries or in, in Christian church seminaries, this, this understanding, which is just the, the understanding, I think, of the New Testament and of the church fathers. And everything fits. I mean, it just fits so neatly. Now we can put together and we can understand the significance, this, the centrality of Christ. And in some way, I'm afraid that's what's knocked out in one way or another in the various developments that I'm describing within, it's not just Protestantism with Roman Catholicism or versions of it. There is just a kind of incapacity to put together the centrality of Christ. I think for me, this discussion gets it. See, Paul, all you ever needed was Eastern Orthodoxy. You know? <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you had this, you had this instinct, or, you know, intuition at the very beginning of your journey, clear back in the, you know, when you started the seminary, that that time is a creature, and so that, and that the whole point of the incarnation is for the eternal to break in, as it were, into time. You know, for God to break in in some way uh, into time. And to not subject him to some law that's greater than uh, you know, some sort of finite category like time and space. It's like you 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 knew that almost like intuitively uh, way back then. Uh, it, yeah, if you knew anything, uh, and that was the the crude part. It wasn't that I didn't have an appreciation even for what some of the openness guys were saying, and I I had an appreciation for. Jürgen Moltmann. He may have been a, a key theologian for me. But I also understood at the same time that there was something highly problematic in both instances. And and I think this resolves it. It allows for, it opens up. I, I think we can talk about the openness of God in Jesus Christ, but not in the way that that theology approached it. In other words, it is recognizing God's unchangeableness what the church has always taught it is orthodox little o orthodox <laughs> yes yes <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah but it's augustine taught it too so yeah that's right you had to swallow that pill well, Latin brother. <laughs> augustine wouldn't have a problem with anything we said and so you know, right right hey this uh, has been uh this has anyway. been a diamond <laughs> so, of a conversation of the yeah, gems cool. that we've produced <laughs> this goes in the front of of the jewelry store of conversation wow. That's great. It's been Thank a lot you of guys. fun. Always a pleasure. And I want to tell everybody before we leave that uh, if you go on social media and like the conversation on whatever app, we appreciate that and point your friends then to the, the Forging Plowshares podcast. I'm sure glad I got smart friends. Oh, well, we owe it to you, really. I mean, you were the genesis of all this thinking. Yeah, True. I mean, we had to be pulled out of our own, or well, at least I can't speak for John, but and I'm still, we're still on the road too, right? We're 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 continually trying to find our on way. On the road together. Yeah, that's right. That's right. On the road to amazing. Uh, I think we got there. We were wrong. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I haven't had to be at the big vision this afternoon. <laughs> almost. It was almost there. I love you guys. Great conversation. Glad we. Could.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.